listening to a Westpac Wire podcast. Westpacwire.com.au. Well, good afternoon and welcome to today's economic briefing. I'm Bill Evans, Chief Economist of the Westpac Group. Our Business Division Chief Executive, Gil Lima, was planning to host today's session, but he's unwell and, of course, he's doing the responsible thing and staying at home. Firstly, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which our webcast is taking place, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging, as well as those Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people among us on the webcast today. I'll get straight into the update and uh, hope that you enjoy the, um, the, the session and certainly look forward to some questions at the conclusion of this discussion. Thank you very much. Well, of course, we need to start when, um, with the elephant in the room, which, of course, is COVID. Uh, I won't show you any pictures of um, the disaster that we're facing in Victoria at the moment, and I'm sitting here in Melbourne office having negotiated public transport and working, walking through the streets of uh, a deserted Melbourne CBD this afternoon, and by gee, it is certainly a deserted place. Melbourne entered stage four last week, and I think, the, for me, the best bit of evidence that I can show you is the extraordinary success that New Zealand had when they entered stage four. Admittedly, they were only working off 100 cases a day, and Melbourne, as you know, is down to around three to 400. But what we saw was that um, the lockdown started on March the 26th, and the cases held up for a number, of, a number more days. But by April 27, a, a month later, they'd got cases right down to negligible levels. So I guess if we want to be confident, and I think we should look at these things in a constructive way, we should be expecting to see that by the end of September that Victoria is on top of its problems. Certainly the forecasts that we've been making with regard to the economy embed two key assumptions. The first one is that Victoria does get on top of its problems by the end of September and there's a reopening in the December quarter. And the second one is that the periodic uh, breakout of cases that we've seen in in New South Wales, specifically in Sydney, uh, doesn't gather great momentum and end up like a Victorian disaster. So with those two assumptions... In approaching the growth outlook for the rest of this year, uh, we've taken the view in looking at each of the different states. So, of course, with Victoria shutting down to to stage four, um, we expect that in the September quarter, uh, Victoria will collapse by 9%. So if we give uh, the level of of activity in each of the states a value of 100%, Uh, at the beginning of the year. Um, You can see that big fall that we're expecting uh, from 95 down to 85 for Victoria in that September quarter. We're then expecting around about a 7%, a 6% recovery to have that economy operating at around 10% below its activity level at the beginning of the year. The story, of course, for the other states is much more encouraging. So for New South Wales, we're expecting 2% growth in the September quarter, followed by another 2% growth in the December quarter, to be down around 4% relative to the beginning of this year. We we then uh, put together Queensland, South Australia, (coughs) Northern Territory and Tasmania, which represents around 30% of gross state product. And we're expecting those states to grow by around 3% in the September quarter, followed by another 1.5% in the December quarter, to be down around 3% by the end of this year relative to last year. And finally, Western Australia, which represents 14% and has been by far the most successful (coughs) in dealing with the virus, 
we would expect 3% growth this quarter, 4% next quarter, uh, to be only down by 1% relative to a year ago. If we think about what that means for national growth, uh, before I go there, uh, let me share with you some data that we look at in terms of mobility trends that we, we gathered from Apple. And that gives you a very similar relative performance story to the one we talked about in terms of relative growth. So a sharp slowdown in mobility in Melbourne, a lesser slowdown in Sydney, an even lesser slowdown in Brisbane, a recovery in Perth and Adelaide. Um, if we think about the overall growth story for the national economy, in the first quarter of this year, we think the economy will contract by 0.3%, in the June quarter by 7%, flat in the September quarter, so a 9% fall in Victoria, offset by those 2 3 and 4% lifts in the states outside Victoria to give us about a flat result, and then a 2.8% growth rate in the December quarter as Victoria recovers up 6%, uh, and the other states continue to grow, albeit at a slower pace than we saw in September. For next year, we haven't changed our numbers. Uh, we expect that growth over the year will be about 3%. And by the end of next year, the economy will be operating at about 98% of the level that it was operating at at the beginning of 2020. Now, that is very disappointing because if we really want to think about where you should be at the end of 2021, you should be at around about 5 to 6% more than you were at the end of 2019, given that trend growth in the economy is 25 to 2.75%. So to be 2% below compared to a normal two, uh, 5 to 6% above just highlights the big shock that the economy is going to take and the fact that even in a year's time, we won't even be back at the level of activity that we, benefit, that we enjoyed at the end of 2019. For the record, that's saying that over 2020, we expect the economy to contract by 4.7%. Before the Victorian shutdown, we were expecting a level four shutdown, we're only expecting 4.2%. But that 4.7%, is more optimistic than the Reserve Bank. The Reserve Bank's saying minus six, Treasury's in line with those numbers. Next year, however, the Reserve Bank thinks we're going to be up by 5%, sorry, by, uh, by 5%, yeah, and we think only 3%. So we think that the lingering constraints around foreign travel, around social distancing, and around just general caution will mean that we won't see the sort of explosive recovery in 2021 that the authorities are currently expecting. Just to put this disaster in the context of historical GDP, you can see that we've had two, two recessions since the 70s, in the 80s and the early 80s, early 90s. And you can see the degree to which the economy is contracting in this recession relative to those previous recessions. Now, we expect that the 90s recession that went for a lot longer than this one uh, and felt as if we were very frustrated as to how to get out of that recession. I remember it well. It was what we call the jobless recovery. So for years there, people were telling us that the data was improving, but it didn't really feel that much better. And indeed, I can recall what I consider the game changer, which was December 93, when it was announced that Sydney had won the Olympic Games and things turned around and the economy took off. But it took a long time for that recovery to occur. We're expecting that a movement back to more normal growth will take less time this time, but of course it is all predicated around um, issues with the virus being dealt with uh, from the December quarter and going forward. Of course, at some point we think that a vaccine will be available, as some of you may have heard overnight about Sputnik in Russia. That's the name of the vaccine that they're adopting there, which they're already going to be distributing. 
Maybe that's a bit early. The last time I heard the word Sputnik was when I was a little baby. My mother told me that someone had put something up into the sky, the Russians, which was called Sputnik. That was in the late 50s. So let's hope that this Sputnik is just as successful. But, of course, we've seen the evidence in Oxford uh, and we've seen evidence from um, companies in the US. So you've got to feel that sometime through 2021 there will be optimism starting to emerge around a vaccine which will see more of a turning point than we saw in those early 90s. The fiscal position, of course, is also extraordinary. So you can see where the budget deficit went to in those early 90s, peaked at around a 4% of GDP deficit, um, 4.1% in the early 90s, 4.2% in the GFC. We're expecting 12% this time around. And, of course, why I'm expecting that the deficit in 2021 is going to be around $240 billion. The government's only at $185 billion at the moment, but they're going to have to spend a lot more money in the budget on the 6th of October. And I think they're also being somewhat optimistic in terms of what I call the cyclical deficit, which is the deficit associated with the downturn in the economy. So $240 billion deficit following on from an $85 billion deficit in 1920. And I expect that in 21-22, the deficit could be as much as $150 billion as well. Now, that might sound unbelievable, but we can manage it. Even if we have that $150 billion deficit in 21-22, net debt to GDP is still going to be about 43%. Now, that's up from 19%. But as you know, Japan well above 200%, the US well above 100%. We're still batting pretty well in a world where fiscal deficits are going to be blowing out all around the world. And I think we'll still be able to fund that deficit at a very, very attractive rate. As you know, the 10-year bond rate is still below 1%. And even when economies start to recover... I think the lag in terms of the improvement in the labour market and any lift in inflation is going to allow governments to lock in their funding at very, very attractive rates. However, in the near term, we have to worry about what I call the fiscal cliff. You're aware of how much the government pumped into the economy in the June quarter. We think around $65 billion. About $20 billion from JobKeeper, $5 billion from JobSeeker. We think around $20 billion came out in early withdrawal of superannuation. There was a $750 payment, about half of which went to pensioners. That's about $5 billion. And then there was another $15 billion that went to small business uh, in lieu of their, of their tax take to keep workers on the payroll. $65 billion went out in June. And yet the economy contracted, we think, by 7%. Now, in the, in the September quarter, we think the number's going to be even bigger, up around $102 billion, $55 billion from JobKeeper, $9 billion from JobSeeker, $18 billion super withdrawal, $4 billion, the $750, another $750 payment that went out in July, and then another $17 billion also in July that went to small business uh, in order to, to keep workers on the payroll. Now, in Q4, as you know, they're going to be scaling back JobKeeper, and they've estimated that whereas 3.4 million workers were on JobKeeper in, um, in the September quarter, that'll fall to 1.4 million in the December quarter. If that number's right... And given the scaling back, only $15 billion will come out in JobKeeper in the December quarter. Another $4 billion in JobSeeker, because that's also being scaled back from about $1,150 to $850. Uh, and we expect more super withdrawal. That $3 billion could, be, could in fact be significantly more, because we think up to $40 billion could be withdrawn, I'm sorry, up to 20,000 per person could, is allowed to be withdrawn and we think only around 
10,000, and the numbers are that only around 10,000 so far has been withdrawn. So we've made an allowance for more in the September quarter and more in the December quarter. But how does an economy cope when it's been given $102 billion from the government in the September quarter and it has to survive on only $22 billion in the December quarter? And I'm saying to you, I think growth actually will be above 2% in that December quarter. Now, the reason why I think that can happen is that the reopening of the economy in Victoria, the ongoing gradual reopening, will be a key factor driving growth. But I also feel that there's a lot of that cash that has been captured in household balance sheets that will be available to help the household sector in that December quarter. A recent survey from the Bureau of Statistics, when people were asked what was the main use of those household payments that you received, including the super, in the September and the June quarters, 29% said the main use was to add to their savings. And 28% said pay down bills. Only 12% said buy more food and drink. So what that's telling me is about 60% of that money was used to, to boost the balance sheet and to provide some financial backup for when the government slows down its payments. I also believe that they've wildly underestimated how many workers will remain on JobKeeper. When they talked about uh, six and a half million workers getting JobKeeper back in March, I found that extraordinary. Because when you look at the overall workforce of about 13 13 million, um, you have sectors like construction, manufacturing, uh, finance, government and that, and you get to half that, half the workforce pretty quickly. And we were sure that they weren't in the position that hospitality, accommodation, um, arts and recreation were in. And, of course, they scaled that number back to a little over th- 3 million workers. Well, they're now saying 1.4 million. The qualification conditions are the same, that you need to, ju- to justify a 30% fall year on year, I think you'll find that a lot more than 1.4 million workers will still be qualifying for JobKeeper in the December and the March quarters next year. The other thing is that business has also been um, using that payment to support their, 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 their business activities. So 61% of people in the survey said they used the money to support employees. But some of them also said, 56%, said they used it to cut fixed costs. 33% said they used it to improve debt servicing. And 30% said they lifted it to service savings. And we've certainly seen that. because we in our own business have seen a substantial lift in business deposits indicating that businesses have built up some buffer to deal with the situation when the money coming from the government slows down. So I think with the reopening of the economy, the fact that those savings are still in the system and the fact that the government has significantly underestimated the number of workers that will still get JobKeeper, I think the economy will show pretty solid growth and we're expecting more than 2% in that December quarter. Now, the one thing that is disturbing, of course, is what businesses plan to do when the support is no longer available. So in the same survey, we found that 16% of respondents said they'll cut back on their investment. 14% said they'll cut back on their new orders. 13% said they'll cut back on workers. 12% they'll change their products. And unfortunately, 10% said they'd close altogether. Now, the split between big business and small business, those first four categories were relatively comparable, but for big business, only 2% of big business said they'd close, whereas 10% of small business said they would close. So we absolutely have to deal with that issue as we go forward, and that will be a drag on on, uh, employment, uh, that 10% of businesses that feel they'll have to close once government support dries up. Let me make a comment about unemployment. So as you can see, the red line there is the unemployment rate. 
And the thing to notice is that when you go into a recession, it takes a long time to get the unemployment rate back to the pre-recession lows. So you can see for that early 1980s recession, it took eight and a half years to get back to that low. And that early 90s recession we talked about took 15 years. Even in the GFC, when unemployment went up from 4 to 6%, we never got back to that 4% 12 years later. Now, of course, I'm saying that unemployment is going to get up to nearly 9% by the end of the September quarter, back to 8.5% by the end of the December quarter, but still at 6% by the end of 2023 and more than 7% by the end of 2022. So still well above that 4% low we had before. And underemployment, which was pretty well managed in the previous recessions, the grey line will be a huge problem going forward. And of course, that explosion in underemployment reflects the greater reliance we have on part-time work now and the greater difficulty the part-time workers are going to have in getting new jobs. Now, our numbers may be eye-popping, but they're not as bad as the government's expecting. 10% unemployment rate by the end of this year. Uh, A lot of the difference between our view and their view is we don't see as big a slowdown in employment growth and the economy in the second half of this year. And we also think the participation rate won't go back to its pre-COVID levels, which the government is expecting. So my view is that they're overestimating the rise in the unemployment rate, but the important thing is that it's going to take a long time to get that back to the levels that we were used to before COVID. Let me tell you about a big shock that I got this morning. So we released our consumer sentiment survey results for August this morning. Now, since July, Victoria's gone on to stage four and we've seen this emergence of what I would call spot fires in New South Wales. So around the, the, the Crossways Hotel, schools, etc. But the numbers not getting much beyond 20 to 30. And they've held those numbers together pretty well for the whole month. But that didn't matter in consumer sentiment today. The index fell by an eye-popping 9.5%. It's now only 5% above those April lows. And that really does surprise me. And even more surprising is that within that numbers, Victoria fell by 8.2%, understandable. But Queensland was down by 8.1%, and New South Wales were down by 15.5%. The level in New South Wales is now pretty much the same level as Victoria. There is a huge fear factor out there in the community at the moment. And the fear is that New South Wales will drift into a second wave along the lines of Victoria, and that Victoria will, won't be able to get their problems under control around about that timetable of the end of September. Now, as I said to you, they're my central forecasts that neither of those factors will occur. And of course, if they did occur, then the growth profile uh, will be much more disturbing for the economy. So let me say to you, at the moment, consumers are very, very nervous about that. And that will show up in their spending and their caution over the next month or so. I'm expecting, however, that by September, uh, the next survey in September with some better results from Victoria, some evidence that New South Wales is not spreading in the way that I think is the fear in those numbers, that things will start to look a lot better. And of course, the government will be watching those numbers really closely because they have to formulate a budget by the 6th of October. And if those confidence levels haven't bounced back, then they're going to have to be even more aggressive in their policies on the 6th of October. If you look at the surprising story on consumer sentiment, you can see that the fall that we saw in New South Wales in August was so much faster than the others, and that the level of confidence in both Victoria New South Wales and Queensland is about the same, despite the fact that Queensland in particular has performed so much better in dealing with the COVID crisis. Uh, And New South Wales, I would certainly put in that category as well. So the issue around the fear across the nation 
looking at the problems in Victoria, getting nervous about information about um, uh, isolated case examples in New South Wales to a much lesser extent in Queensland, is really holding down consumer confidence at the moment. Let me talk to you a little bit about spending. Um, uh, we, we have what we call the Westpac Card Tracker. So in this card tracker, we look at the millions of credit card transactions, both credit and debit card, to try and get a feel for spending trends. And what we've seen in recent weeks, consistent with what we've seen from that big fall in consumer sentiment, is that we've seen a slowdown in those numbers. So that index that got down to 80 uh, in April meant that relative to a year ago, spending was down about 25%. 100 is the level of growth above a year ago before COVID. So generally speaking, you expect spending to be about 5% above. So you've gone from 5%, a level of 100, which is 5% above, to a level of 80, meaning about a 25% fall in overall spending. Then, of course, we got the recovery and things picked up. And by the... by. In recent weeks, the index was actually above 100, but it's actually fallen back to below 100, particularly around this stage four information. We also look at what I would call COVID-exposed expenditure, and that includes travel, tourism, hospitality, recreational. So those ones that have been really badly hit. And if you look at Victoria relative to the rest of the country... That index went from 100 down to 20 in April. It's been crawling back to around 80 in the rest of the country, but in Victoria it got up to around 55 back in June and since then has fallen all the way back to around 30. So the gap on COVID-exposed spending uh, between the rest of the country and Victoria is extraordinarily wide, and yet the sentiment numbers are not that different. So we must say that we believe that we can expect to see some recovery in sentiment. If we look at some of the broader categories, food, of course, has always been well above 100. You saw that stockpiling back in the middle of March, and we're starting to see some evidence of stockpiling again in Victoria. Um, the results of that will be out sometime today uh, for the last week. Uh, but, of course, hospitality has made some comeback and, of course, clothing that was really hit has been doing much better, particularly with support from online. So the story there, clothing back to sort of normal levels at the moment, hospitality still well below and food well above uh, those pre-COVID levels. The other big issue that we're facing is around population growth. So the government has said that immigration is likely to fall 85% 2020-21 relative to 2018-19. 85%. You can see what drives our population growth. So the red line is total population growth. The black line is the contribution from migration. And the natural, which is the, the difference between the two, is pretty steady at around half a percent. So if we see that collapse in migration, it's going to be a huge drag on overall population growth. Now, we've been relatively optimistic, thinking that population will slow to around half a percent contribution to the one to one and a half that we normally have. But the government's current numbers suggest that will be a lot lower. The other thing to remember is that more, more than two-thirds of our of our, pop, of our net migration is now temporary visas. That's students, temporary workers, uh, tourists who require a visa. And within that, students are more than two-thirds of temporary visas. So we are very exposed to the shock to students and we need to develop some policies to try and reboot that student story. Uh, if we don't, it's going to have a major impact, in particular, on housing construction. So if we look at our dwelling completions forecasts, we've got them down from around 230,000 pre-COVID to getting down around that 130,000. What we're seeing at the moment 
is that most of the pain is in New South Wales and Victoria. Some of the government stimulus packages are genuinely helping outside Sydney and Melbourne. But the population story will weigh heavily on Sydney and Melbourne, and that'll weigh on housing construction activity. House prices, of course, are one of the questions that are asked of me a lot, and I haven't changed my view. I think house prices nationally are going to fall by about 10% before we reach the bottom on the house price story. I'm not surprised that the process has been slower than other activity numbers. So Sydney house prices are currently down nearly 2% from the peak in April. Uh, Melbourne house prices down 3.2%. A long way from the 10% I'm expecting. But I think with the very high ongoing level of unemployment, with the big hit to population growth from migration, with, this, with the, some of the headwinds that we still have to deal with around mortgage holidays and around rent holidays that are going to be affecting um, investors and owner-occupiers. And around the fact that in other cycles, the Reserve Bank has played a key role. When the Australian economy has gone into recession in the past, the Reserve Bank has been at the front of the queue, slashing interest rates, boosting housing and leading the way out. This time they can't do that. Interest rates are at zero, effectively for them, uh, and they cannot do anything more to support the housing market as we've seen in the past. Now, admittedly, fixed rates are down substantially by about three quarters of a percent, but 20%, only 20% of the stock of housing loans are on fixed rates. The majority is still on, is on floating mortgage rates. So I'm thinking that still by March, by the June quarter next year, house prices nationally will be down by 10%. And of course, uh, in Sydney and Melbourne in particular, by more than that. Here's some data we've seen on mortgages. We think that around about 10% are, on, are currently on temporary mortgage relief. When that starts to fade, that will have an impact on the housing market. We think that about 13% are on rent relief, uh, rent relief of 0 to 25%, and around 6%, around 4% of 25 to 50%, and around 2% on 50%. So these factors, as they start to be unwound, are going to have that drag on, on the housing market. So high unemployment, confidence issues, lack of interest rate cuts, and some structural changes as relief starts to ease, I think we'll all, and the population story, will all lead to that fall in house prices. We make a couple of comments about the international story. I think success in dealing with the COVID will really dictate how the global economy evolves, and in particular, how individual uh, economies evolve. So if we look at the US... Their, their success, they have stabilised their number of cases, but at huge levels, and that's dragging upon their growth. And to deal with, to bring those cases down, they're going to have to maintain some pretty, pretty stringent restrictions on growth in the US. On the other hand, China's been very successful. That's that flat line almost on the zero level, and that's allowing China to reboot their economy in a safe way. The Europeans have done well, but we're now starting to see some evidence of some lift in cases in Europe. For me, the critical thing is growth in the US relative to growth in China. So if I give activity in the US a value of 100 at the end of last year, and activity levels in China the same value of 100, and try and track how those economies are going to evolve, evolve over 2020, 2021. We saw the big hit to China in the first quarter, down 10%. But since then, China has been on a, has been on a tear. And it's going to go from down 10% to up 5% over the course of this year. 15% growth in the last three quarters of 2020 and another 5% next year. Whereas the US is going to really struggle. The low point will be sometime in the September quarter. And I don't see the US 
really recovering back to pre-COVID levels by the end of next year. So by then, relative to pre-COVID, China running at 110, US around 97. So China really outperforming the US. And that has implications for Australia, confidence in Australia, and particularly for our currency. So if we look at the Australian dollar, Australian dollar has long cycles. So if we go back to the mid-90s, there was a 4.3-year down cycle when it fell from nearly 80 cents down to less than 50 cents. And then we had the industrialisation of China from the early 2000s up until the GFC. So a seven-year upswing in the Aussie dollar. Then we had the GFC when, of course, Aussie got smashed from the high 90s down to the 60s, low 60s. And then we had the recovery, 2.4 years. Then the Aussie came off as the global economy slowed by four and a half, for four and a half years, picked up for two years and came off for two years. Now, we saw in March that the Aussie dollar has reached a low point again. So we've seen it lift from 60, from the high 50s momentarily to 71. I say to you that we're now in an upswing for the Aussie dollar. And I think it's going to be another long-term upswing. If I superimpose upon that the relative success of China relative to the US, the impact that's going to have on confidence in the US dollar, but the overriding evidence of these long cycles, then my confidence that Aussie dollar will be rising through the rest of this year, through next year, and probably through the year after, is gaining strength all the time. So I think that we need to remember these long cycles and we need to retain confidence that Aussie turned in, in, um, in March this year and is likely to be on this long upswing uh, going through this year, next year and into 2022. These are my latest forecasts. I've got Aussie at 72 by the end of December, 76 by 21. They were forecasts I gave you a month ago when Aussie was 68. It's typically, it can outrun you quickly. It can make you look silly. You can feel you're on a good trade and then suddenly it runs ahead of you. So I have to review these numbers. But the point, the more important point is this longer term trend that I think you need to be mindful of. On interest rates, the RBA is on hold out to 2023. The three-year bond rate, I think, will start to rise in 2022 because by 2022, I don't think people will think the RBA is on hold for another three years. The 10-year bond rate will rise next year. Think of the term vaccine. Think of the fact that by the second half of next year, we will be starting to see some optimism return to global markets, and that will put some upward pressure on long-term interest rates. And the relative rate of Aussie dollar relative to the US is probably likely to rise. So let me conclude. There's great variation in the state's output growth in the second half of this year. Victorian lockdown is going to have an impact locally. The US is on, New South Wales on the edge, but okay for now. New Zealand stage four gives me hope for Victoria. We think output is still 2% below by the end of 2021. The fiscal cliff will be offset by savings and the reopening. Current government estimates of the fiscal cliff are overstating the size. There's going to be more people on JobKeeper than they expect, so the cliff will be much less. The build-up in savings is going to help the economy, but consumer sentiment is certainly fragile. Property will be... The impact on property is going to be delayed. High unemployment rate, migration, construction is going to be down. Sydney and Melbourne will be the weakest players. Relative growth in China and the US boosting the Aussie dollar. And remember those long cycles. And remember that the cycle turned in March so we can be pretty confident about the rest of this year, 2021 and 2022. Thank you very much. And I'd certainly be happy to take some questions. Thank you, Bill. Our first question today is, how do you see the future unfolding for house prices and the Australian award wage system? 
Oh, look, house prices, as we've said, we think a 10% fall by the March to June quarters next year. Sydney and Melbourne, they're down 1.8, 3.2. Nationally, they're down around 2%. So it's a slow recovery, it's a slow turning. But I don't think it's going to change. I don't think we're going to see this slow grind down uh, recover anytime soon. Uh, with regard to award wages, wages growth is going to be incredibly slow. We saw today that for the for the um, for the for the June quarter, only up 0.2 percent, up 1.8 percent for the year. The oversupply of, of of workers, the high unemployment rate, is going to keep downward pressure on market wages. But we have to bear in mind the fact that people need that living wage. They need the, the minimum wage needs to, to be provided there to provide people with some support. So I certainly support the fact that we've seen JobSeeker set at $850, not the $600 we had before. And I certainly support the fact that there will be that lift in the minimum wage. But the overall market-determined wages growth is going to have a one in front of it for the next couple of years rather than the miserable two and a half that we we saw before. And that's really going to reflect that oversupply of workers in the face of these very, very high and stubborn unemployment rates. Thanks. Our next question. Can you hypothesise how we will pay all this money back? For example, will GST go to 15%? Will death duties rear their heads again? Or will capital gains tax increase? Governments have to learn to live with more debt. The world is going to live with more government debt. This is a a once-in-a-hundred-years event. And the governments have to realise that trying to, to restore their balance sheets in a situation like this, when we do have this very sticky high unemployment rate, will be the wrong policy. As I said, I expect a budget deficit in 2021-22 of $150 billion. That's compared to $85 billion in 1920, $240 billion. I think we'll find that governments will want to grow their way out of these issues. And if it turns out that the government share, that the share of government debt as a proportion of GDP is rising in an environment of low inflation and high unemployment, then so be it. But policies to try and restore government balance sheets will be a disaster. Japan, of course, is an extreme example because they have zero population growth and an ageing population. But you can see every time the Japanese have tried to raise their consumption tax to try and deal with their government debt, it's proven to be damaging for their economy. No, I don't think government policies to raise taxes, etc., will be on the horizon for many, many years to come. Next question. What is the worst possible outcome of this virus from an economic position over the next 12 months? Oh, look, I think the worst possible outcome would be second waves, would be no success in finding a treatment or a vaccine, which, of course, would be a global issue. And then, of course, we would have to see the economies operating with these long periods of shutdowns. But I think we realise that social distancing, reducing community transmission will certainly stabilise the story. And I think with the amount of money that's being thrown at the global search for a vaccine uh, and the evidence that we're already starting to see, we really shouldn't be thinking in terms of in a year's time that there would still be no vaccine or there'd still be no treatment to at least be able to ensure that the sort of uh, death rates that are plaguing the world at the moment can be eliminated. So certainly I don't believe that the sort of scenario that says that in a year's time we'll be looking at exactly the same situation we're looking at today looks realistic. And what's your view on Victoria's recovery, especially in housing? Oh, look, as we said, our numbers are a 9% fall uh, in the September quarter. That's coming off a 7% fall in the June quarter that was basically a national 7% fall. That's down 16%. We think there will be a recovery in Victoria in the December quarter. We're saying 6%. 
Bear in mind that in, in the month of June, hours worked around the country lifted by 4%. So, excuse me, lifted by 4%. So what we have to say there is that when reopenings occur, you do get quite a rapid turnaround relatively quickly. Now, clearly this reopening will have to be more managed because we don't want to go back into lockdown. But the point is that once we go through that period, Victoria will start to come out. And, of course, as I've said, Victoria will be a big beneficiary of JobKeeper in the December quarter as Victorian businesses are able to clearly point to a 30% reduction in their turnover in the September quarter. So Victoria, I think, will come back. But having said that, by the end of this year, Victoria will still be operating 10% less than it was at the end of last year. And that compares with the nation of the, the nation of uh, about 4.7% and, and, and New South Wales of around 4%. Next year, Victoria on a slower recovery at around about 3%. So still be operating well below capacity by the end of next year. Victoria suffers the most from the population shock suffers most, I believe, from the housing affordability being stretched at the moment. So as I said, I think house prices in Victoria will be down by more than anywhere else in the country, in, in Melbourne, uh, with a base of around 10% nationally, so 12% or so for Melbourne between now and the, the June quarter of next year, and an appropriate re reduction in construction activity. Next question. What are your thoughts regarding any resurgence of inflation or indeed stagflation? Uh, certainly no inflation surgence, and that means stagflation as well. Inflationary expectations are low. Uh, people worried about a, a resurgence in inflation following the GFC uh, when we saw the so-called printing of money during quantitative easing, when the central banks were buying back bonds, boosting bank reserves, so boosting the money supply. The problem was that businesses weren't prepared to borrow the money. And it's only the money getting into the economy via business lending that can put pressure on inflation. That didn't happen after the GFC. It's certainly not going to happen after this COVID crisis. So while we certainly expect to see a sharp lift in bank reserves and a sharp lift in, um, in, in money supply... I certainly don't expect it to feed into any inflationary issues. We have what we call a massive output gap. So the difference between demand and potential demand is very wide. There's plenty of scope for activity to expand to satisfy demand. And so the idea of stagflation or inflation being an issue over the next three to five years I think is extraordinarily unlikely. Let's face it, since the GFC, uh, we've had these big boosts to money supply. That's uh, 12 years ago now, and we still haven't seen the higher inflation. And people's inflationary expectations are incredibly low. Businesses are not planning to raise their prices. Workers are not planning to make large wage claims. No, we're in this situation for a very long time to come. And our last question this afternoon. Would you agree that one approach to deal with the federal budget deficit would be for the RBA to buy government bonds from Treasury and hold them indefinitely on its books, with profits made on these holdings returned as dividend payments, therefore neutralising the cost of debt? Well, that's what we're seeing at the moment. The RBA is buying bonds. That's not quite um, um, money printing. The money printing is where the government just provides the RBA with an IOU that doesn't generate any return in the way buying bonds generates a return for the RBA. So it's not quite like that. And money printing um, makes, gives the government the decision on how many IOUs to give to the central bank. That's what happened in, Rhodesia, in uh, Zimbabwe and countries where you get explosive inflation where the government just prints and prints and prints and prints money and the central bank has no say in it. Central Bank at the moment does have a say in it. They can decide whether to buy bonds or not. Uh, and that's the way they want it. They want to get a return on their asset and they want to decide how many bonds they buy. At the moment, they've made a commitment to hold the bond rate down at 0.25 and they'll make a commitment to buy what bonds are necessary to do that. 
And if, it, if more bonds go into the Reserve Bank's balance sheet, that shows up in bank reserves. But if the banks hold more reserves so they have the capacity to lend, if businesses are not prepared to lend it, then you're certainly not going to get the inflation uh, that we're talking about. So the idea of financing government spending by printing IOUs indefinitely will lead to inflation. But the central bank and the government have more discipline than that. So I'm not expecting to see that to be the outcome. But certainly I am expecting to see the central bank expanding its balance sheet, which will give the banks more reserves, give them more capacity to lend money. But if business and the household sector are not prepared to want to lend, want to borrow, as we've seen post-GFC, then you're not going to get the inflation issues that you're talking about. Uh, Without a doubt, the government can finance its debt. Uh, it's able to finance its debt outside the Reserve Bank. Our bond rates are about 0.3 above US bond rates. We find that whenever the government makes a bond issue, uh, there's strong interest from international investors. That's unlikely to change. There's still a lot of confidence in the stability and the discipline of the Australian economy. There's still a lot of confidence in the fact that our net debt to GDP ratio is around about 37, will be about 37% by the end of 2021. And 43%, if I'm right, with another 150 billion deficit, 21-22. International investors are still attracted at those levels. That's how we need it to be, that the government, that the RBA should not be funding all the government bond issue, but certainly should be, should be there to support the economy by buying government bonds when necessary to hold interest rates down. Thank you, Bill. That's all the time we have for questions today. Over to you to close. Oh, thank you so much. So let me say that I'm looking forward to the uh, to the next event on the 2nd of September. I won't have the next instalment of the, of the Westpac Consumer Sentiment Survey, but if we have the sort of developments that we expect around the virus between now and the first week in September, I think we'll be able to confidently predict that we'll start to see more stability in the economy, more strength, in, uh, more confidence, less fragility, less fear, and a, and a more stable outlook going forward. But having said that, we still expect this economy to contract by nearly 5% over the course of this year. Thank you very much. That's all from us today at Westpac Wire. For more, head to westpacwire.com.au. 